Hello, this is Brian Auten of Apologetics 315. Today's interview is with astrophysicist Jeff Zwierink. Jeff is a research scholar with the Reasons to Believe in Southern California and serves part-time on the physics and astronomy research faculty at UCLA. He is author of Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? And that'll be the main topic of our interview today. We'll be discussing the multiverse hypothesis and its implications for Christian theism. Well, thanks for joining me today, Jeff. Well, it's good to be here, Brian. I'm looking forward to the interview here. Well, I am uh, appreciate you being with me. Uh, RTB and all of its resources have been a real blessing through all your podcasts. Uh, I hope our listeners find our discussion helpful as well. I would agree. And I, you know, it's, I've, I've found even before I came to RTB, I kind of found that same thing, just the ability to have, it's kind of a unique set of resources that are out there to help integrate both uh, science and your Christian faith. And so I found them useful in the past. That's part of why I'm here on staff. So. Well, excellent. Now, first, would you mind just telling our listeners a bit more about yourself and your work at Reasons to Believe? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm. Uh, my my name is Jeff Warrick. I've got a PhD in astrophysics. Um, I graduated from Iowa State uh, a little bit over, well, coming up on 15 years ago. It was 97 was when I graduated from my PhD. Um, I grew up in a home where uh, Christianity was just kind of an integral part of how we lived. My parents became Christians at a young age, and so it was a uh, uh, just a very logical and and uh, reasonable thing to uh, continue on in the Christian faith. I personally became a Christian when I was in the fifth grade in an Awana program that I was attending. Uh, it was the first time that I clearly understood what the gospel message was and responded to it that night and talked to my folks when I got home that evening, and they confirmed uh, upon future discussions that I had an accurate understanding of the gospel and what Christ had done and uh, was baptized later that year. And uh, while the Christianity had been an important part of our family and of my life, uh, my dad's a Ph.D. chemist, and so I had had a fascination with science for a long time, too. Mm-hmm. And as I had uh, gone into gone through high school and uh, eventually uh, decided that I liked physics as the best of the science, or that that was the science that I liked the most, uh, went in, got a uh, bachelor's in physics uh, from Iowa State as well, and realized that there was a met or a uh, possibility of doing both professional Christian work or missionary work and prof- as a scientist as well. And so that's kind of what attracted me to Reasons to Believe, is that their their mission is to reach out to the scientific community with the gospel and to be able to use the scientific evidence as a way to bring that message to a people who might not otherwise listen. Well, that's really interesting. And, you know, it makes me think about how, you know, some people look up at the starry heavens above, if you will, and, you know, for them it's a really strong evidence, almost self-evident, that the cosmos is a creation of God, but others might look at it and think otherwise, we're just this random collocation of atoms in a tiny speck of this vast expanse. So I wonder what your view is of the cosmos, if you find it to be a powerful evidence in and of itself of the Creator. I really do find it to be that. Um, as I uh, just look out uh, in the sky, I love being out on a dark a dark night out, kind of especially up at higher elevation where you can see lots of stars, and it's just amazing. Just the, the clarity, the, the things you can see. You can even watch satellites going by. Um, just 
the the beauty of creation, not only here on Earth, but especially as we've developed telescopes to see what's going on out in the heavens. Uh, it just, to me, argues very strongly that there is a creator who fashioned all this. Um, typically, uh, or, or another aspect of why I find it fascinating is the more I learn about it, the more I see how intricately put together and how uh, how well designed it is, and that just kind of... Uh, reaffirms that there is a, a designer and a creator behind all of this. I think uh, some look at this and see, well, you know, we can explain all this without the need for a God. And so, therefore, while they look and see the splendor and beauty of uh, creation, they think, okay, well, we can explain this uh, without appealing to a God, and therefore we don't need one. I'm curious as well what role you think that natural theology plays overall in, in making a case for God's existence. Well, I think it's uh, pretty important. Uh, numerous places in the Scripture that God tell or you know, the, the authors of Scripture tell us to go out and look at the creation and how it reveals God's glory, His power, His majesty, His might, um, and His care for us. Uh, it's it's not that the creation doesn't real reveal that, but some people choose to suppress the the idea that it's pointing towards God. That's part of what's being described there in the first first chapter of Romans. It's not that God's power and majesty and, and might are not evident through creation, but it's some choose to reject that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so I think natural theology of just understanding the creation and the implications of this universe pointing towards God, uh, you know, to strengthen the case that can be made through that, because that is a uh, part of the grace that God has extended to everybody, the common grace that everybody receives. And so the more we can develop that, uh, the better. You mentioned there, Jeff, how uh, as you look and learn more about the universe, it's even a greater evidence for God. And I wonder what particular evidences of design do you see or do you find most compelling in the universe? I think the the things that I find most interesting or compelling about the universe is that um, how what we find as we study the universe correlates and corroborates how the Bible describes the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly the Bible describes a universe that has a beginning to it. And we our best scientific evidence points to the universe having a beginning, whether that beginning is the Big Bang itself or whether there's some multiverse that has a beginning. All of the scientific evidence does point to the universe uh, not being past infinite or having a beginning to it. Uh, we see a universe that is undergoing expanding, or that God is stretching out the heavens. Well, when we look at the uh, scientific evidence, the universe is being stretched out. We see a universe that is governed by constant laws of physics, both from a biblical description and as we look out, uh, as we try and understand this cosmos. In fact, our general relativity, which is arguably one of the best uh, tested and verified uh, theories, explicitly builds into its framework the idea that the laws of physics are constant and don't depend on your motion or location in any sort of way. So this correlation between the biblical universe uh, and the physical universe that we study through science is, to me, a very powerful evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, Coupled in with that is uh, just kind of as we learn more and more about creation, what we see is that the universe could be differently. I mean, we could imagine how we could have uh, laws of physics that were different, either more or less laws of physics, or laws of physics that have different strengths, 
or even just the dimensionality of space-time. You know, we kind of take for granted that we live in uh, a universe that has three large spatial dimensions and one time dimension. But when you begin tweaking any one of those things very rapidly, you end up with a universe that's incapable of supporting physical life. And so uh, I don't know that I can point to any one particular instance or one particular example, but it's kind of this cumulative and growing body of evidence that we live in a universe that matches the biblical description in its growth features, you know, the, the beginning uh, and expansion and constant laws of physics, and also a universe that appears designed for us to be here. Um, scientifically, it's just a non-controversial statement to say that the universe appears designed to support life. Uh, some would say, well, we're going to explain that design and that it's just an apparent design, it's not real design, but the, the appearance of design is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Those arguments you mentioned, uh, some Christian apologists would be quite familiar with arguments from fine-tuning, the need for a beginning, if, a big banger, if you will. You've probably heard a lot of different arguments uh, working in apologetics yourself, and I'm wondering, are there certain arguments that you would rather Christians avoid, and if so, why? Well, I think probably the, the single t- class of arguments that we need to be very careful with um, are arguments where we try and argue, or formulate a, a probability-type argument, uh, because uh, especially in light of research over the past 10 to 15 years, we need to be careful how we formulate those probability arguments, because, uh, you, know, you, te- you, or, you know, it's typically, well, uh, we see that we have to have the, the uh, dark energy density must be what it is at one part in 120, and because it's that way that, you know, that that just seems kind of case closed that you live in a design universe. Well, with probabilities, you've got to formulate them properly. And especially in the context of the multiverse, there are some pretty good responses to that. But I think more than rather than any single argument for or against, it's just important that we understand how strong that argument really is, in particular, would that argument, would you be able to defend that argument in front of someone who knew as much science as you did, or, or rather who was an expert in that field? And if you, can use, if you could defend that argument in front of someone who was an expert in that field, then I think it's a good argument. And so it's not any particular argument that's good or bad, but it's just making sure that we really do understand the strengths and weaknesses of any argument we use so that we don't get caught off guard saying something that makes Christianity look foolish. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good advice. Now, you mentioned there the multiverse. Um, many cosmologists and physicists refer to not just a universe, a term that used to mean everything that's out there, but now they're referring to the possibility, at least, of a multiverse. So some even speak of it as if it's case closed, it's kind of a thing that's already settled. That's one of the reasons I wanted to interview you today, Jeff, because you've written even a booklet about the multiverse entitled Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? So I want to talk more about what you cover in that booklet. But first, a couple questions. When people talk about the universe today, what do they mean? That's a really good question, and that's actually the first thing I address in the booklet is just kind of defining what the universe is. And for the context of talking about a multiverse, the, the way you have to define the universe is this. When we look out into the heavens, we don't see things as they are today. We see things as they were in the past. 
so because it's simply because light has to take time to travel from that object to us. Uh, most people are aware that it takes light a little bit over eight minutes to get from the sun to us. So if the sun were to immediately disappear from the universe right now, we would not know that by looking at the light until eight and a half minutes because uh, that light is still going to be propagating toward us. And so we can go out, you know, so we're seeing the sun as it was eight and a half minutes ago, eight to eight and a half minutes ago. Well, when we look out further, maybe the Andromeda galaxy, we're seeing it as it, as it was roughly two and a half million years ago. And as we go out to the Hubble Ultra Deep Field and even further, we're seeing things as they were upwards of 13 uh, plus billion years ago. In fact, the cosmic microwave background radiation that we use uh, that the COBE satellite uh, detected the ripples in and the WMAP uh, produced a very beautiful map of uh, five or six years ago. We're seeing that light as it was emitted or as it appeared 13.7 billion years ago. And so you see that the further out we look or the further away we look, the further back in time we're seeing. Because the universe is only 13.7 and a little billion years old, there's a limit to how far out we can see. And typically when you're having a multiverse-type discussion, when people refer to the universe, they're referring to the limit of what we can see. Um, and so you know, the, the radius of that limit right now is about 50 billion light, year, or 50 billion light years from us. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a limit to how far out we can see, and we can define that as the observable universe or a Hubble volume or kind of some of the terms used for it. But that's kind of the, the physical realm that we can actually measure and figure out what's going on. And so that's it, when I'm talking about the multiverse, the universe would be that observable universe. Okay. When we're talking about the multiverse, what do we mean? Is this uh, like a parallel universe? Are there an infinite number of these or just lots of them? Well, it's a good, uh, it's another good question because now that we've defined what the universe is, we can now, the multiverse is just simply a statement or a, the idea that there are physical realms beyond what we can see. And there are different kinds of multiverse that you can envision. Um, I talked about the furthest limits we could see. Given what we understand about our universe and how inflation works and how it's expanded, if we were to be instantaneously transported from here out to the edge of the observable universe, in all likelihood, we're just going to see more of the same. And so the first type of multiverse, or what people refer to as a level one multiverse, is simply the idea that space extends beyond what we can see, and it's at least as large or larger than our observable universe. And so you could imagine if you could step outside our observable universe and look at this on a big picture scale, there's some sphere that you can define as our observable universe. And if you could see the whole realm beyond that, you could just put a whole bunch of things the size of our observable universe uh, in that realm. And so that's a level one multiverse. I find that idea very non-controversial, and I would... I would speak of that as though it's an already settled and done issue, or a done and settled issue. Typically, when people are talking about the multiverse, though, uh, they're talking about something a little different. Um, in that uh, realm, or, or you know, there's this space that exists beyond what we can see. It's still essentially the same laws of physics. Uh, you know, it, it looks very, or it doesn't look any different than where we are here. When 
the uh, level two multiverse is actually arguing that there are other universes that might have different laws of physics and different uh, dimensionality that are completely separate from our universe. So if I could travel fast enough through our space, I would get to these other level one multiverses. The level two multiverses are presumably so far away that I could never travel to them. And even if I could, they would have such different laws of physics that I wouldn't be able to interact with them. Um, and again, that level two multiverse typically flows out of inflationary cosmologies where the way they understand it is that our universe formed as a bubble in this inflating realm and there are other bubbles that are going to form. And so uh, the level two multiverse is kind of the most common that people talk about, and that's this idea that there are other universes completely separate from ours that have different laws of physics, different sizes, different dimensionalities, uh, and just are completely separate from ours. Mm -hmm. Well, let me pause and interrupt you there to make sure I'm following you, and hopefully maybe it'll also help our listeners. But when you're talking about the level one multiverse, that idea, tell me if I'm getting this right. In other words, if you, you were to be transported instantly to the edge of our current observable universe, then we would be able to see that it just keeps on going further, and there's vastness beyond what we can currently observe. Is that sort of correct? Right, there? yeah. You know, if you were looking for a good science fiction movie to base this off of, this is kind of a Star Wars-type multiverse. Mm -hmm. You know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Presumably this is so far away that it's beyond what would ever interact with us, mm -hmm. but yet it's still kind of the same universe. It's just different planets, different uh, different. Uh, stars, that sort of stuff, but it's largely the same. It, it appears essentially the same as our universe. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're talking about a level two, um, here's where maybe I'm getting a little fuzzy because sometimes people will say something like parallel universe, and it kind of gives you the idea that this is simply another dimension kind of riding on top of our current space. Like, we just can't observe it, but uh, there's another dimension there. But you're not talking about a, another dimension of our current universe. You're talking about something so drastically distant from us that uh, it's just, you know, really far away that we can never interact with it. Is that correct? To a good approximation, yeah. I'm, I'm going to put a little caveat on that last statement because it's possible that these other bubble universes might run into ours, uh, depending on how, how our, our models uh, behave. But as a general rule, these other universes, what distinguishes the bubble universes, you know, you can use the term parallel universes, uh, but that does kind of have that implication you, you described um, of just kind of more of the same of ours or this dimension just outside ours. Re the, the significant feature of these uh, bubble universes is that they're completely separate. They have different laws of physics, different dimensionality, different constants of physics, they're really a different, different, different animal than our universe is. Uh, they look very differently, and if we were to be instantaneously transported into them, we would find that we wouldn't be able to exist in all likelihood. All right, Jeff, you've talked about these level one and level two, so I believe there's four basic universe models. What are the other third and fourth? Yeah, the the, the third one is kind of uh, the third or level three multiverse arises from a little bit of a different. Uh, scientific principle, whereas, you know, the level one and level two really flow out of, uh, inflationary cosmology, uh, models, uh, where you got these bubbles that are growing into universes and expanding very rapidly, those sorts of things. The level three multiverse 
actually arises from quantum mechanical uh, ideas. And the issue with quantum mechanics is that uh, the very nature of the way quantum mechanical interactions happen is that regardless of how well specified the initial conditions are, uh, the outcomes can only be predicted in a probabilistic sense. Um, you know, something can be the, either up or down, and you can only predict up or down with some degree of probability, which is very different than uh, it, it just that's different than the the classical way we think of things. And where this comes in, or how the multiverse comes in, is that some have argued that the the interpretation or the reality behind that probabilistic nature is that rather than there being a single outcome that occurs and that that, that poses uh, some uh, uh, dilemmas scientifically, that it means that things are non-unitary. I'll just throw that terminology out there without really explaining it. But um, people think things are – there's a reason to believe that the universe ought to be unitary or creation ought to be unitary. And the implication of that is that where you have these uh, quantum mechanical events that have probabilistic outcomes, while we can predict them probabilistically, the all of the outcomes actually happen. And so we only are aware of a particular outcome, but there's another realm where the other outcome occurred. Mm-hmm. And so you can see how th- this, this really does uh, kind of lend itself to this parallel universe type idea. So... You know, presumably we're kind of going along and there's some quantum mechanical decision that's made and we now only become aware of this reality, but there's another reality very similar to ours where the other outcome occurred. And uh, so this is the level three multiverse. This is the type of multiverse that Stephen Hawking is talking about in his uh, book, The Grand Design. Mm-hmm. Uh, it arises from these quantum mechanical type processes. Um, what's interesting is that when you look on, if you're able to look, step outside the whole multiverse even and look at it, the level three multiverse and the level two multiverse look essentially identical uh, on, on a large scale, even though they, the scientific basis for postulating them are very different. And so, uh, so you've got the level one, which is just there's more space than what we can see. You've got the level two, which is there are universes with different laws of physics. You've got the level three, which you've got this kind of quantum mechanical multiverse. And then the level four is just simply a accumulator, or the, the collection of the, any other kind of way you might envision a multiverse. Um, it's kind of a catch-all category at this point in time. But, uh, so that's kind of the different, different, uh, uh, types of multiverses that people talk about. Now, I, that's a, a terminology first developed by a fellow who, uh, works at, uh, I believe it's, Harvard, uh, it's either Harvard or MIT, I can't remember which off the top of my head, uh, a fellow named Max Tegmark. He just came up with that classification. But I think it's a useful way to delineate what type of multiverse you're talking about because they each have a little bit of a different different implication. So of these various models, which one is the most common? I think most scientists would take the level one multiverse as uh, basically a done deal. I, I would be very surprised to see... Uh, that the level one multiverse doesn't actually exist. Uh, most people, when they're talking about a multiverse, are generally referring to this level two multiverse. Although, uh, like I said, you know, Stephen Hawking and uh, people who tend to do particle physics are more likely to talk about the uh, level three multiverse just because of the quantum mechanical 
uh, nature of it. And that's typically what particle physics are dealing with is quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, the question here then next is how do astrophysicists actually come to the conclusion or feel the need to postulate the existence of a multiverse? You mentioned some of the reasons on a quantum scale for the level three, but what's the, you know, if, if someone said to you, Jeff, what's the evidence for this, w what do you point to? Well, what I would point to, and and part of why I'm uh, at the very minimum at least ambivalent to the existence of a level two multiverse, is that when we look out at our universe, what we see is that it's expanding, it's uh, it has this uh, beginning to it, and uh, you know it's governed by general relativity. And as we look backwards in time, what we see is that there's a strong and growing body of evidence that our universe underwent a period of very rapid inflation very early in its history. And there's, like I said, there's a growing body of evidence that inflation did indeed occur. And as we try and formulate a, a theory or a model of how this inflation works, the implications of the, the general class of models that are out there right now are that our universe is a bubble that formed in this inflating space. So the the given or what exists or what uh, happens before our universe forms is there's this inflating stuff. It's called the false vacuum, and its its character or its nature is to expand very very rapidly. Occasionally, the energy of the false vacuum will decay away in a particular region and form a bubble that grows larger and larger over time where this expansion, inflationary expansion, has decayed away to a more normal expansion. And the picture is that our universe is within one of those bubbles, that that's really the only way to make, it, make this model work. Well, if you've ever watched a pot boil... Um, granted, it's a little bit different physics there, but it would be really weird to have a pot boil and you just get this one bubble. You know, you're going to get lots of bubbles. And so, uh, inflation kind of works out the same way that once it start or once inflation starts, that you're going to get lots of these bubbles. And so there's going to be lots of different universes out there or, or, or this multiverse as it's referred to. And so that coupled with some developments of string theory, which uh, the, the, the relevant aspect of string theory is that as we're looking to unify the four fundamental laws of physics, what we see is that there are, uh, lots of different ways that a universe could look. Ours is not the only way it could look, and so there's a, a whole plethora of different ways that a universe could look, different laws of physics, different dimensionality, uh, different physical constants, and so, uh, you've got inflation that produces all these different bubble universes, and you've got string theory, which says, okay, all of these different universes uh, are likely to have different laws of physics. And so that's kind of the experimental or the, the theoretical uh, scientific basis for proposing the multi multiverse. It really kind of flows that if you're going to say inflation occurred and our understanding of inflation is relatively correct, then a logical outworking of that is you have this level two multiverse. All right. Sometimes people object to the multiverse for various reasons, but could someone object to there being a multiverse as simply, hey, this is an, an idea that's unfalsifiable, that you know, there's really no way to prove this wrong? Uh, that, that was a co that's a common objection, and uh, it's a common objection even among scientists who are working on this. 
um, you know, what the the things I've described are kind of theoretical ideas, which the mathematics works out well, and there's kind of an elegance to them. But, uh, you know, the history of science is littered with ideas that were mathematically elegant that turned out to be incorrect. And so the what what really you know helps you keep your feet to the rubber is to make sure that you have some way of testing and and falsifying the idea. And so people who've done or who are working in multiverse uh research have worked really hard at asking how could we falsify this? And it turns out that there are some measurements that we can make in our universe that could make it unfalsifiable. In fact, uh uh earlier this month I did a podcast, uh Science News Flash podcast uh, that talked about a research paper published in the Physical Review Journal, uh, one in the Physical Review Letters, one in Physical Review D, that was looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation to see if we find evidence of one of another one of these bubble universes colliding with ours. And so if we were to find evidence of a universe colliding with ours, and that would be a confirmation that we live in such a such a multiverse. If we looked and looked and looked and never found a, a, a bubble universe that was colliding with ours, that wouldn't necessarily multiply the, or falsify the multiverse idea. But it certainly is a way to validate and confirm that such a bubble or such bubble universes do exist. And so uh, the, the the point I would uh, point or the point that I'm trying to make is that scientists are working very hard to ask the question what measurements can we make that either would affirm or uh, tend to invalidate or falsify the multiverse idea. They're working hard at that. Some are stronger than others. It's not where it needs to be. You know, but I would kind of point out, even when Einstein proposed general relativity, it wasn't falsifiable by no means at the time. I mean, it was uh, decades later before we even had the tools to even really think about how to falsify or verify it. And so, uh, you know, let's, let's uh, be a little, uh, realize that the multiverse is in the, what I term the scientifically speculative category, but let's also give it time to develop and see if we can develop those tests uh, that would allow us to falsify or validate the multiverse idea. You know, and scientists are working pretty hard at doing just that. Uh, so they, they take that charge of being unfalsifiable seriously and are saying, okay, what can we do to address this concern? And, and they've done a lot of work, but uh, there's still much to be done. Well, again, you've written this uh, booklet called Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? And in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you whether or not I should be afraid. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> first, first, another objection that someone might hear regarding the multiverse would be along the lines of Occam's razor, basically this principle that roughly says that you shouldn't, you should generally prefer a simpler theory over one that makes a greater number of assumptions. So, they might say something like, well, doesn't postulating an infinite number of universes, isn't that a bit of an overkill? Uh, I, and I wonder where scientists would stand on that. Do they really say there's an infinite number of them or there's just very many of them? Um, that's, that's, again, another another good point. I, I would point this out with Occam's razor, is that there's a couple of things, you know, it's typically thought, okay, we're going to look for the simplest explanation and leave it at that. But there, there is a very important caveat, is that you've got to find the simplest explanation that explains everything we see. <clears throat> and so um, simply because an explanation may have uh, a degree of complexity, that complexity may be required to explain all that we see in the universe. 
Now, uh, so that, that's one comment I would make. But how I have the the responses I've heard to such charges of, uh, you know, okay, postulating an infant number is, is uh, just kind of adding assumptions or or that that's a Occam razor would kind of eliminate that is you have to also be careful how you define simpler because, uh, for example, uh, if I were to want to define uh, integers. If I want to specify a single integer, uh, there's actually a fair bit of work I have to do or a fair, or I have to specify rules to say that this is the specific integer I want. Whereas it's very easy, a very simple set of rules that specifies how to generate every integer. And so if I want to specify how to generate the integer 10, I have to add in two or three rules, whereas if I want to specify how to generate every integer, it's only one or two rules. And so the set of rules to specify all integers is simpler than the set of rules to specify a given integer. And you can see how that kind of applies to a multiverse idea, is that what people are arguing is that it's simpler to specify how to generate every possible universe than it is to specify how to generate a universe like ours. And so, uh, you know, while it's important to keep in mind that we're not just, uh, you know, making a, adding things on unnecessarily, um, I don't know that Occam's razor, Occam's, yeah, Occam's razor is a good, way of saying, okay, this multiverse thing is just not a good thing to be doing. I think that it's a rule of thumb that helps us ferret out what are the best explanations, but um, I, I don't know that it's a way of saying, okay, we ought to just rule the multiverse out because it's too complex. I think there's ways you can make an argument that it's actually the simpler way of doing things, and I know people who have done that. So, again, it's just to kind of be careful that we're not trying to use this as kind of the silver bullet that'll kill some multiverse model. Sure. Well, I've mentioned a couple times your book, Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? So tell me what your goal is in that book. And here's the question, should Christians be afraid of the multiverse? The, the title is kind of particularly provocative like that, because my experience has been, even I, I found this in myself, and as I talk with Christians about the multiverse, the idea that, well, if there's just all these universes out there, then God isn't really necessary, that uh, all of our arguments for design and our argument for the beginning are just going to disappear and God God becomes unnecessary. And so as Christians, we need to be afraid of it. And that was really how I approached it when I first began looking into uh, the idea of a multiverse. And as I studied more, what I realized is that, one, there's some scientifically good ideas for postulating, or good reasons for postulating the multiverse. Uh, but the problem is, is that we don't have a way of testing whether the multiverse is there or not. So I began to take a little bit of a different approach and say, okay, let's, let's just for, uh, just for kick, say the multiverse does exist. Does this fit more comfortably within a theistic worldview or an atheistic worldview? Or, or another way of stating this is, does the multiverse help the naturalist in his case of arguing a, that there is no God? Or does the multiverse help the Christian in arguing for his case that there is a God? And uh, what I've identified is that if you're going to, as a naturalist, argue for that the multiverse helps you remove the need for a God, well then what you have to do is uh, there's 
a number of requirements, and I outlined five, and I'll just kind of post or highlight a couple of them here, is that one, in the multiverse, there must be no beginning, because if a universe has, or if the, create, or if the physical realm has a beginning, that implies that there's a beginner that exists or transcends the creation. There must be no design in the multiverse, because if you have design in the multiverse, then again, uh, that implies a designer. Um, and for the multiverse to help the naturalist, life also must be completely physical. And there's an, that, that's a, a strong assumption made by most naturalists. But if there's anything about uh, life, particularly humanity, that is non-physical, like a spirit, then no amount of rearranging and having all of this physical matter at your disposal is going to explain how humanity's here. So life must be completely physical in order for the multiverse to help the naturalist. Well, then I go in and I ask the question specifically, okay, does the multiverse indicate that there's a beginning or does it remove the need for a beginner? And each of the different levels of multiverse kind of address this in a different fashion, but the the conclusion I come away with or, or highlight is that even if a multiverse exists, any multiverse that seems consistent with our universe appears also to have a beginning. And so it by doing research into the multiverse, it actually strengthens the case that there's a beginning, and if there's a beginning, there's a beginner. And so it strengthens the cosmological argument for God's existence. Similarly, when you look at design, um, you know, obviously postulating a vast realm of other stuff out there uh, has a significant impact on how you develop probability-type arguments. But you can ask the question, does the universe or does a multiverse still exhibit design, or does our existence in the multiverse uh, require design? And while the nature of that question changes, or how you answer that question changes whether you're dealing with a multiverse or not, ultimately you end up with a... Uh, a teleological argument or argument from design, even in the context of a multiverse. And so what I argue is that the multiverse research has actually made the cosmological and teleological arguments, or the argument from a beginner and the argument from a designer, more robust and stronger. And so that this actually fits more comfortably in a theistic worldview than it does in an atheistic worldview or a strictly naturalistic worldview. And so I would argue that the Christian doesn't have anything to fear from the multiverse. Um, it does require us to think correctly and think more, or make sure our theology of, of how we interact with created realm is, is good. But uh, whether the multiverse exists or not, it still makes the case for a God, uh, a creator, uh, and a designer uh, even stronger. So I think I think the naturalist really has more to worry about with the multiverse than a Christian does. Would you say that really the question of the multiverse is a question more about the nature of the created realm, but it doesn't really change anything for the arguments for Christian theism because you still need all of the same things uh, on a multiverse description of reality as you do with a non-multiverse? I would say so, yes, that uh, one of the hopes that the the naturalist or the, the atheist had um, as they began looking at the multiverse was this idea that uh, while our universe began in a Big Bang, that maybe the multiverse uh, 
didn't have a beginning, that it was simply just self-existent, uh, you know, very similar to how we argue that God doesn't require a beginning because he's self-existent, or God doesn't have a beginning because he's self-existent. And so the hope was that maybe just the universe was past eternal, and that therefore all the evidence for a beginning that we see in our universe is really not that compelling. Well, what, uh, as again, as people began to investigate the multiverse and ask this question of does the multiverse get rid of the need for a beginning, what they found is that uh, even on more general grounds, you can now argue that the multiverse had a beginning. And so yeah, it, it makes the case a little more nuanced. So instead of just arguing Big Bang cosmology, you have to argue it in a little bit of a broader context and have a little more subtlety and nuance to it. But it makes the argument for a beginning even stronger. And so whereas the, the naturalist, the strict naturalist, had hoped that the multiverse would solve the problem, really it just pushed it back one step and actually made the problem, uh, again, from a naturalist perspective, even stronger, that the, the case for a beginner and a designer grew even stronger in the context of a multiverse than when compared to just looking at a single universe. Well, Jeff, I wonder how you'd respond to those who might say that the existence of a multiverse pretty much does away with the fine-tuning argument for the universe. For instance, atheists might say, or they might prefer to embrace the multiverse for the reason that the fine-tuning for life isn't surprising. After all, if you have this infinite number of universes, every possibility will become actualized. So does a multiverse hypothesis pose a threat to an argument for a fine-tuner? Well, it, it poses an argue, or it poses a threat to the way those arguments are traditionally formulated. But there, there's two comments I would make. One addressing specifically whether we see design in a multiverse and how you evaluate that. But also pointing out that uh, that sort of argument or reasoning is a is a double-edged sword for the scientist because. Um, if we're arguing that, okay, we see that life is incredibly rare on Earth, uh, that the probabilities are small, but given enough space and volume, it's just going to happen. Um, and you uh, postulate this kind of infinitude of infinitely large uh, universes, then what ends up happening is that every possible thing that can happen does happen. Now, how science operates in practice is that there are certain things that are small enough probability that we just don't have to worry about them. Well, now you've eliminated that uh, practical outworking of how science operates. So we can uh, no longer argue which is the most probable or which is the most likely, or, or even if we could, we can't say that that's what's happening here because anything that can happen in the multiverse does happen. And so if you're arguing that the chance occurrence of humanity arising on a planet, though incredibly small, just happens because everything happens, uh, that poses a significant problem for the functioning of science. Now, addressing the specific question of whether uh, just adding all this stuff really removes the argument from design, um, it again you have to address the question, or instead of talking about how rare humanity appears, um, if the naturalist is correct that there's all this infinitude of, of universes which are very large, and life is purely physical, then life abounds throughout the multiverse. And that's, that's a, a, a thing that is not often appreciated by people who use uh, who, who just say, okay, the multiverse is so big that we're bound to happen. 
because if life abounds in the multiverse, there are different ways you can formulate life. And I'm, I, I uh, address these in my in my multiverse booklet, but you can get life by having uh, this kind of evolutionary process that scientists will talk about. But you can also get life uh, through these process or developing Boltzmann brains, or you can get life by developing sim- or, you know, advanced civilizations running simulations. And so the, the very nature of how our life looks and whether it's typical of all the different kinds of life that can exist in the multiverse is where the design argument arises. And so rather than asking how do you explain our rareness, which is what you do in a context of a single universe, you ask the question, how typical are we of all the life that ought to exist in the multiverse? And it turns out that as the best we can count it at this point in time, it seems like we're very atypical. And things that are atypical are evidence of design. Now, my suspicion is, as you're, most people are listening to that the first time, that say, okay, well, that doesn't seem like a very strong argument. But, again, that's because we're so used to thinking of things in the context of a small sample size of just our universe. But this atypicality argument of asking whether human life is typical or not is actually a pretty strong argument for design. And it's the way you have to formulate it in the context of a multiverse. And so just the same way the multiverse strengthens the cosmological argument, it also strengthens the teleological argument or argument from design. But again, uh, without spending a lot of time here, it's hard to get into some of those details. And so I'd, I would refer you to my booklet to, or some of the articles I've written on our website to get into some of the more details there. Yeah, we will do that. Now, Jeff, you're interacting with this sort of material practically on a daily basis, but the layman who may be listening and they've made it this far, they may not at all be well acquainted with even a fraction of the terminology. And you mentioned there how you know it's going to take a long time to explain a lot of these ideas to bring someone to a good understanding to kind of get their mind around it. So my question is this. If if someone comes up to you, Jeff, and they, they, they come up to you and say, hey, I, I just watched this thing on the Discovery Channel, and they say that we live in this multiverse, and this basically eliminates the need for God, what do you tell your friend when you just have you know, a brief few minutes and you, know, you don't have time to explain all the terminology? What's sort of a, a nutshell idea that you'd want to put their way? I, I would say this, especially when I'm when I when I talk with other Christians. What my general encouragement in all of this, whether we're talking about multiverses or extrasolar planets or global warming or whatever the, the the latest hot scientific topic is, is basically to encourage them. Okay, what does the Bible say about this? We we often have thoughts that the Bible says this or that about certain things. Um, that are not actually in the Bible. And, and I would make an argument, and, and the thing I would point out is that the Bible is largely silent on whether there's the existence of a multiverse or not. And so the question is not, uh, does the multiverse destroy God? It's, okay, what do we know about this? What do we know that God says did happen? And then that'll help us spot where people are making false arguments. It's kind of the principle of uh, uh, if you... If you, you know, the, the argument that's typically used of, uh, of bank tellers is that you don't train them in how to spot all the counterfeits, is that you get them so familiar with dollar bills that when they feel a, when they feel a counterfeit, they know it's counterfeit, even if they may not know why. And then uh, when the counterfeit comes up, they can say, okay, I can go figure out why this one's counterfeit. 
And so uh, in the discussion, it's like, okay, make sure you understand your scriptures well enough and study it so that you know what the Bible does and doesn't say about uh, creation, the beginning, about who God is, about how he interacts with creation, so that when scientific stuff comes up, you can spot what is really a, a threat to Christianity and what isn't. And the why that's helpful is that it helps you identify where to have that discussion with the person you're dialoguing with. Um, rather than, you know, I don't really have a whole great discussion on whether the multiverse exists or not. My questions are, okay, if the multiverse exists, does that change whether we need a God or not? Um, that's a very different line of conversation than having to get into whether inflation's true or not or how quantum mechanics is interpreted. We can actually talk, okay, well, what's necessary for the or the multiverse to get rid of the need for a God? Well, it needs to not have a beginner, but the under, my understanding of how the research plays out is that, there's a, that there is a beginning even in the multiverse. And so you, you get to where you can t- use the research that's out there as you need it, but more importantly, you're aware of the topics to engage in a dialogue with with the person you're talking, because most of the time they have about as much scientific knowledge as you do. And so it's uh, you can get bogged down in the scientific details, but really I think what influences how a lot of people interpret this is their worldview. And so if you can help encourage them to see how a Christian worldview fits with uh, whatever topic you're discussing, then I think that's where you're going to have some fruitful di- fruitful dialogue. Mm-hmm. That's good. Now, I'm going to shift gears just for a moment uh, away from the multiverse, <laughs> and uh, but staying on the topic of speaking with others, and I, I want to ask what your advice is for, say, Christian apologists who are interacting with non-believers regularly, and I want to ask you, uh, how can they be better informed of the latest science on these sorts of topics? I'll, of course, port them to your podcasts, but uh, how would you encourage people to you know, stay abreast of this sort of information? What I would encourage them to do is to find a set of resources that allow them to stay current. Uh, one of the things that I regularly read is an art, or is a, um, it's a, a website called Science Daily. Um, there's just a whole lot of stuff. These are kind of the the scientific discoveries that seem to be of interest. They're kind of more popular, popular level articles than, than technical articles, but they have access or references to all the technical stuff so you can track that down if you want. The important thing though is being aware of the audience you're dealing with. And so, um, what I stay informed of are apologetic issues related to science and physics and how the earth works and uh, astronomy, cosmology, those sorts of things, because those are the people that I'm going to regularly interact with. Um, if you're interacting with a whole bunch of biologists or people who are in the life sciences, you're going to have a different realm of science that you're going to need to have access to. And so finding uh pay attention to the people you're interacting with. Where are they getting their news from? Where are they getting this information from? And pay attention to those sources. Listen to those sources. Read those sources. So you're, you're, you're aware of the information they have. Critical in all of this is just knowing what the Bible has to say. Uh, there's a whole lot of unfruitful arguments we can engage in because we're just not aware of what the Bible has to say about a certain topic. And then depending, once you've become aware of who you're dialoguing with, where they're getting their information, and what information they're getting, 
and once you've increased your knowledge of Scripture, so you know what's, what's talking about there, uh, you just have to go out and find a resource that is has the expertise to help you understand what's going on in that discipline. Sometimes you might be able to get access to the journals and read them. Sometimes you may have to go find a scientist who's a friend or who uh, at the local university. But just finding a resource to help you un- elevate your level of science up to the level of people you're talking with. And so there, there's no magic bullet I can give you, unfortunately, where if you come here and read our website, you're going to be completely equipped for everything you need. It's really developing relationships with the people you're around. And as you do that, it will be more and more obvious what you need to do, what you need to study. And then once you figure out what you need to study, how to get that information uh, generally is not too awfully difficult. Mm-hmm. to figure out. I mean, it may be difficult to understand the information, but where to go to get that understanding generally falls into place. Are there particular authors or books that you'd want to direct people to that would help them in studying, in particular, scientific apologetics? Yeah, I know that we've developed quite a few resources here at Reasons to Believe. Uh, one uh, scientist who I find uh, very engaging to read, uh, even though he's, he's not, a, not a Christian, he uh, believe he puts himself in the skeptic category, um, is a fellow named Paul Davies. He just does a very good job of explaining what are the relevant issues, uh, and and even from an apologetics perspective of how this influences whether God exists or not. And he seems to, he just has a very balanced and uh, articulate way of describing those things. I like reading what he has to say. Uh, there are, I would say, rather than particular authors, typically it's find the the field of that you're engaging in and find resources in that field i can't you know there, there's no particular set of books uh, or apologetics i mean there there are a wealth of people out there uh who have good resources and, and it's just going to vary depending on what field you're in so well do you have any other projects you're working on with rtb that we should be looking out for uh, one of the projects, the, or the biggest project I'm working on, is just developing a uh, response and outline of what's going on finding extrasolar planets. And again, this kind of impacts the area of, uh, you know, if we find other planets, are we going to find life? And if we find life, what does that have to say? And, uh, you know, again, it's just one of those places where I, I suspect uh, Christians, and again, based on my own personal history, have this uh, perception that, uh, the more planets we find, the more that's going to show that God isn't really who he says he is. And just to ha- how to help people understand what we're finding with planets, what are the big issues there, what are the, the, un- the, the big questions that people are asking, and what do we expect to find, and how do we think about this uh, within a Christian worldview. So that's, that's the next big project I'm working on. Well, good. I'll point our listeners to reasons.org for more from Reasons to Believe. Well, Jeff, it's been a fascinating interview, and I really appreciate all you've done with your resources and especially RTB's podcasts. And thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Well, I appreciate the opportunity again. It's been a lot of fun. I have been speaking with astrophysicist Jeff Zwierink, research scholar with reasons to believe. Links to Who's Afraid of the Multiverse can be found at today's blog post at Apologetics 315. One thing that helps get the word out about resources like this interview is your help by sending links, tweets, and Facebook updates to your friends on the web. If you found this resource helpful, please take a few seconds to share it. You never know who you might benefit. I also encourage you to be a friend on Facebook or Twitter for more daily links to the best resources and articles in Christian apologetics. 
If you're listening to the audio and are not subscribed to the Apologetics 315 interviews, check them out in iTunes. Just type in Apologetics 315 into the search bar for this podcast and others from Apologetics 315. Podcast episodes are released in advance of their blog posting, so consider subscribing. And check out our interviews channel on YouTube. This is Brian Auten of Apologetics 315, and thanks for listening.